Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, I definitely don't believe in Jesus. It's obviously an ancient myth. And, you know, even the Jesus story, his biography, is, is completely unoriginal. He makes outrageous claims. He claims he has the authority to forgive sins and the power to raise the dead. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that. Do you, so you do think he was a real person? Most of the scholars I've talked to say he probably was. The evidence is not great, of course, but... There's lots of rules about slavery in the Bible. None of them are, don't do it. They never even thought to say that. Read about Jesus seemed to be a really good guy, they killed him. That's just the nature of people. So what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived, plus a myth, and in some sense Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that. Do I believe it? Of course not. It was written by people in the Bronze Age who didn't know what a germ or an atom was. And Jesus healed everyone that he, and then he couldn't walk and now he touched me and he can walk. I don't know what to do with that. The Jesus of the Gospels is either God in the flesh or a terrible imposter. There is no middle ground. Who do you think he was? Well, God is real, Jesus existed, he was a badass outlaw, and has changed my outlook on life. And so in some sense I believe it's undeniable. Good morning, The Well Church. My name is Kerry Newhoff. I'm the founding pastor at Connexus Church, and I'm really excited to be doing this series together with Jeff Brody, with VJ, and with Mark Clark. And today, I want to open up with a question. And the question is simply, who is Jesus to you? Like, some of you are brand new to church, and we're really, really glad you're here, whether you're in person at one of our locations, whether you're watching online, we're really glad you're here. But obviously, you've formed enough of an opinion of Jesus to even ask a question to show up or to tune in to a church. And so all of us come in with preconceived notions of who Jesus is. And I want to challenge you, and I'm going to just suggest that the longer you've been in church and the longer you've been a Christian the more difficult it is to accurately answer a question in a way that reflects who Jesus actually was. So I grew up in church. My parents are here today. We, you know, we didn't miss more than five Sundays in the first 20 years of my life. And it was one of those things where I just kind of grew up hearing about Jesus at the dinner table, and I'm so grateful for that, and growing up in a church about Jesus. Now, some of you grew up in church, some of you did not, but even if you're an atheist, even if, and I hope you heard part one of the series last week with Jeff Brody, even if you doubt the historical existence of Jesus, which honestly, no serious historian doubts. Jesus, in all probability, with so much attestation from so many sources outside the Bible, was a figure who lived. Like he was, there was this figure named Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now, what you do with him Well, that's up to you. You've got to figure that out. And that's what I want to talk to you about. But a lot of us have been anesthetized to Jesus. So I grew up in church, and I was thinking about what were some of my early childhood images of Jesus. And I want to show you a picture. This picture hung in the church education wing. Did you, if you grew up in church, you recognize that picture? Uh Uh-huh. That was done in 1940 by a guy named Werner Salzman, and it has been reproduced half a billion times. 
I think that's half a billion churches around the world that people like you and me grew up in. And if you take a look at this, that's a really interesting, you know, Jesus looks so kind of angelic. There's a little bit of a halo around him, his eyes, he just looks so peaceful. But the other image I had growing up of Jesus, and thank you guys if you can show that. Anyone know flannel graph Jesus? Did you, did you grow up with flannel graph Jesus? We had to dig through church basements across Ontario to find this, but we found it for today, all right? This literally was sitting in a church basement somewhere in the GTA, and we found it. But look at Jesus here. I was looking to see if he has blue eyes, because a lot of the time Jesus has blue eyes. His eyes are black, so that's evil Jesus on the flannel graph right now. I don't know why, but like Jesus probably, Jesus was Jewish, He was Middle Eastern. He didn't have blonde hair. He didn't have blue eyes. But you look at this, and the sky was always blue, unless it was Noah's Ark, and then lots of people died on the flannel graph. But, you know, it's it's sort of a sunny day, and you got birds, and the birds of the air, and you got all these people, and the people are gathering to hear him teach. You got little sheep, you know, almost Psalm 23 there, drinking by still water. So you've got this Jesus, but then you got flannel graph Jesus, right? And for a lot of us, what happens is we grow up with images of Jesus where he ends up being like this, okay? So flannel graph Jesus is, he's meek, he's kind, he's nice, he's inoffensive, he's powerless, he's uncontroversial. And you know how you know this? I got nothing against Christian bookstores. Have you ever been to a Christian bookstore? It's like so polite, And the music, like there's barely any drums. And it's just, it's got these fragrances. So it's kind of like, ah, and it kind of, it's like Muzak. That's what it is. And so we have this view, particularly in the church. And that's why I'm saying, the longer you've been in the church, the harder it is to get an accurate perception of who Jesus was. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably asking this question, did Jesus really teach anything radical? Like, let's be honest. When you look at all the world religions, I mean, Buddha taught about self-actualization and enlightenment, and aren't all religions really about world peace? Like, we've got that going through all the major religions. And isn't Jesus just saying those things that we all kind of believe and we want the world to be like? So he's not very offensive. He's pretty meek. He's pretty powerless. Did he really teach anything radical? Like, come on, what is the unique viewpoint of Christianity? And at the heart of authentic Christianity is Jesus. And is he really radical? So I want to look at that today. I want to peel off my church eyes. And I want to really look at what Jesus said in the original context. So we're going to look at some teachings of Jesus. We're going to look at two. I like to drill down on one. We're going to drill down a lot on probably the most famous sermon he ever gave, just some selected verses. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's from Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 21 through 48. We're going to look at selected verses. And the problem is, I have read, I know a lot of you jumped on recently to a Bible reading challenge. We've given out, I don't know, 100, 150 Bibles over the last couple of months. I think that's amazing. You should read your Bible. But if you're like me, See, I pastored this church for a number of years, and when I became a pastor, I thought, probably a good idea to read through the Bible every year. So I've been doing that for over 25 years, reading the Bible pretty much cover to cover every single year. And the problem is, the more familiar you are with it, the more you just glaze over it. You don't even really read it anymore. So I try to mix up translations. I try to see it in a fresh way. I read it in a different order. But what I want to do is I want to take you into the heart of Jesus' teaching, and I want to show you 
how different it is from maybe what I think or what you think when you look at it in its original context. So what Jesus is doing here, he's got the famous Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. And then he talks about, I'm not here to abolish the law. What he means is the Old Testament. I'm not here to get rid of the first part of the Bible, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. I'm here to fulfill them. And then he launches into something that biblical commentators call the six antitheses. So what he does is, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And the you've heard it said comes from the Old Testament, the part of the scripture that they had in Jesus' day, which all Jews kind of adhered to. And Jesus is saying, okay, remember this teaching? Let me show you what it really means. And we're going to look at five of the six antitheses. Not that I'm deleting one on purpose. Well, I kind of am because I think it needs a whole week. So anyway, we're going to look at a few of them. And we're going to see whether Jesus' teachings really were radical or whether they're shared by all religions or whether they're just like, oh, yeah, we all kind of believe that. It's good. So Jesus starts out in verse 21, and he says, You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Now, for a lot of us, I've had this conversation with so many people who are new to church. It's like, look... And Andy Stanley has dealt with this in in his incredible book, How Good is Good Enough. But it's like, I'm basically a decent person. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't committed murder. I mean, maybe a few of you statistically are murderers, but most of us, we would say, nope, you know, I haven't haven't killed anybody, not lately. And so we read this and we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good on that, like the Old Testament. And this is one of the Ten Commandments, actually, that Jesus is quoting. And you say, see, Carrie, this is why Jesus' teachings are just so like all the other teachings in the world. There's no religion that really condones murder, and Jesus isn't really being that radical. Well, I want you to think for a minute about our culture. And you might see this sitting as people in a fairly prosperous nation in the West as, well, of course, of course, of course we're not going to kill each other. Like, we don't do that. Well, if you look in our culture today, what about this? This is not normal. What about honor killings? Do you know they are still very much a thing in certain cultures in the world? You've disgraced our family. Honor killings are a thing. Look it up. What about gangs? Gangs elevate violence and murder. They see it in some cases as a virtue. Now, you can get into, well, those are, you know, difficult cultures or difficult lives or we're fighting against that. Yeah, we're fighting against it because there's something to fight against. Like, in a culture that doesn't naturally murder, you don't have a commandment that says, do not murder. Right? There's no Ten Commandment that says, do not overbreathe. You don't need to be told that. All right? You know, like, oh, yeah, I got to keep breathing. It's automatic. But for murder, it's like, yeah, left to our own devices, you and I can get a little bit violent. What about warfare? What about evil and repressive regimes? I mean, the headlines today are full of regimes that are systematically killing people, imprisoning and torturing journalists, murdering opponents of the state. So Jesus comes along. That kind of is radical when you look at it. Do not murder. And it's similar to what you've got in your heart. But then (laughs) Jesus doesn't leave it there. If it was just the Old Testament, it's like, all right, all right, we're good, we're good. But then, this is the antithesis. Jesus said, you've heard it said? Then he says, but I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Uh Uh-oh. And what Jesus is doing here is we tend to reduce God's word to the bare minimums. I do. It's like, yeah, haven't murdered anybody so far. Check, 
I'm good. And Jesus says, well, you ever been angry at somebody? Like, when did the timer start on that? (laughs) Probably. And then he says this, if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in the danger of the fires of hell. Now, the Bible is written in Greek. It's really interesting. You know what idiot is? It actually literally means, it says some of your Bible translations, depending on what you're reading, will say raka, which is the Aramaic term. It actually means airhead. That's what it means. If you call someone stupid, he says, wow, that person's brainless, not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer. You're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone there, the Greek word is actually moro, which, from which we get moron. <laughs> if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Now, here's, here's the challenge. Some of us did that on the way to church in traffic. <laughs> Right? You didn't even get to church. You're like, I haven't sinned today, but you couldn't even get here without sinning. And Jesus is like, okay, because there's murder. Yeah, but some of you, you murder people in your heart. You've murdered that boss. You've murdered your neighbor. You've murdered, you've murdered the guy who cut you off on the red light. Like, you did that already, didn't you? We're like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm guilty. I'm not good in traffic. I mean, in heaven... Only fast people will be in the fast lane. I know that. I know that. Otherwise, I don't want to go. Okay? So, I'm guilty of this. So, then he says, he continues. So, as a result, if this is really where it's going, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, that's their equivalent of church in Jesus' day. So, if you're in church, which you are, so now pay attention. And suddenly remember that someone has something against you. Not that you have something against someone. It's like, I'm still mad at him. Somebody's got something against you. Leave your sacrifice. Next verse, leave, leave. Some of you are going to free up some seats, okay? Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. And Jesus is saying, look, you might be saying, it's good between me and God. We're fine. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, you're kind of off the hook, all right? This is Jesus is speaking to people who want a relationship with him and want to be his disciples. And he's saying, if you really want to be the church, if you really want to be my follower, you can't be right with me if you're not right with other people or if other people have something against you. So pay attention. And then he continues, when you're on your way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Don't be like a, well, you know, I'm right and I'm going to prove I'm right. And otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, he says, you surely, next verse, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying you can't be right with God if you're not right with the people around you. So get right with the people around you. In fact, you might be better off to skip a service and go and ask for forgiveness and then come back. He's not done. Remember there's six of these? You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. In other words, don't have an affair. Don't have an affair. If you're married... Stay faithful to the person that you made your promises to. That's what Jesus is saying. But then he says, okay. And for some of us, we're like, yeah, guilty. 
And for some of us, you're like, no, murder, adultery, nope. But I say, I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whew. We're in trouble. I'm in trouble. I mean, you got to go to the beach with a blindfold on, right? According to Jesus, like, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. That like little text chain that's kind of weird, that's just kind of flirty. Jesus is like, oh, where's your brain going? Jesus, see, the goal is not just, no, we didn't actually define intercourse. What is that? Like define, he said, that's not the goal. The goal is that you have an unswerving devotion to one person which in some way is a symbol of the unswerving devotion that I have to you. You'd be like, oh, well, this is hard. Yes. And Jesus says, so, I'll, I'll help you out here. He says, here's some advice. If your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. It's like, well, I don't want to think about what body part causes me to sin and gouge that out, Jesus. Like, come on. See, Jesus is so meek and mild. It's like, no. There's going to be a lot of dismembered Christians at the service next week. Not going to be a lot left of us, is there? And then he says, what does he mean your whole body is thrown into hell? Does that mean that if you're not perfect, you go to hell? Well, the word under that in Greek is Gehenna. And Gehenna was southwest of Jerusalem, and it was a garbage dump. It had been used by pagan religions hundreds of years earlier to offer sacrifices. And eventually, garbage has got to go somewhere. So the fire was always going in southwest Jerusalem, and that's where you just brought your garbage. And Jesus uses a metaphor to say, you're kind of like that. And even if your hand, your stronger hand, your good hand, I'm right-handed, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he continues, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, don't make any vows. Phew. Okay, great. Just say a simple, yes, I will. Or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. That's where you get some translations, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles. You don't have to... Now, people ask you to sign a contract. Maybe you sign a contract and that kind of thing. But basically, if you commit to something, you do it. You want to be a follower of mine? You say it, you do it. And then he says, you've also heard in the Old Testament, the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Old Testament. That's also in the Code of Hammurabi. It is a Mesopotamian text that predates the Bible. You can find this in other places. And what that was designed to do is the rich often had privileges. And the rich could decide when people were property, hey, I don't like you. We're going to cut off his hand or we're going to do whatever. I'm going to kill him. And it's like, no, this was originally an equalizing law. So it sounds very barbaric from our standard. But again, in its historical context, very equalizing. And the idea was, hey, you're Mr. Bajillionaire, but you can't do that to a slave. 
You gouged out his tooth, you lose a tooth. You hurt him, you're also under the law. And then this gets continued in the New Testament. So it was originally equalizing, if you follow that. But Jesus says, but it wasn't supposed to stop there because it became this little vengeance code by the time Jesus came along. He said, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Okay, wait, so someone slaps me? And I'm like, here you go. What? And if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now, again, in the first century, people didn't have like a wardrobe. Here's the master closet. They didn't have that stuff. They had a shirt and a coat. And you needed the coat because it got cold at night. And if you didn't have it, it was very common to say, okay, I'm going to give you my coat as my pledge. I'll come back at the end of the day and pick it up. And even if that person owed you, you had to give it back to them by the end of the day. And Jesus is saying, well, let's reverse it. Let's be self-sacrificial people. And you be the people that decide that you're not going to retaliate and you're going to go further. And then, you've heard of this, go the extra mile. You ever wonder where it comes from? Next teaching. He explains it more. He says, if you're unclear, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So impressment was a practice. We call it conscription now, but impressment was a little bit different. Impressment was basically the military could come by your house, knock on the door and go, hey, I need that pot. Hey, I need you to carry this. And you just had to do it. And people hated it. Just like you don't like maybe paying taxes, people really hated that in Jesus' culture. And Jesus comes along and says, so if the Roman soldier, the enemy, comes up and he says, you're going to carry my heavy load, this 80-pound back a mile, you say, no problem, and you carry it too. Like, what? You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which was a bit of a twist. But you know, there's what it says in the book, and then there's how people interpret it. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So the question you're probably asking is, is why? Why, Jesus? Like, the Old Testament was hard enough, okay? And now you've elevated it to the standard of perfection that nobody can possibly live up to? He goes, oh, I'll tell you why. Here's the reason. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And the idea in Jewish thought was that children reflected their parents. And your heavenly Father, he says, is perfect. So, Carrie, you need to be perfect. And I'm like, but you haven't lived in my head for 10 minutes. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect. I'm a disaster. For he gives his sunlight, he says, to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain to the just and the unjust alike. I think about this a lot. Because you know what it means? It means that, hey, when I've had my back turned on God in different seasons of my life, it still rains in the dry seasons on my lawn. The sun still comes up in the morning for me. And if Jesus had some kind of, God had some kind of objective standard where he's like, whoa, here's a cutoff line, guess what? I fail. And he says, so on those days where you fall short, the sun's still going to rise, the rain's still going to fall, and maybe, maybe you'll change. 
And then he goes on. He says, look, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to follow me, if you, are only, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And tax collectors were hated. Hated. He says, look, that's just, you don't need me to love people. You don't need me to be nice to people who are nice to you, to love people who love you back. But maybe, maybe you need a little bit of extra help for your enemies, for that crotchety neighbor, for the boss you hate, for the spouse who you think is being difficult, but they think you're being difficult. Maybe you need some extra grace. That person who you lent money to, who never paid you back, mm -hmm, love them. That person you gave the job to who never said thank you, love them. Because if you're just like tit for tat, guess what? You're a good pagan. He goes on and he says, even if you, are only kind, if you are kind only to your friends, how are you even different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. And to a large extent, Christians are somewhat unrecognizable from pagans these days. We do what Jesus says, great, that's what you do as a human being. Awesome. You don't need me for that. But then he says, you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, translations, the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. So the word under perfect is actually teleos, from which you get the idea of the end, the perfection. And so it's sort of, if you want to look at Carrie finished, if you want to look at you finished under the hand of Christ, it's going to look like this. That one day, maybe it's not today, but one day you will love your enemies and you will get better at that day after day. You will offer the other cheek. You will loan money without the expectation to have it paid back. You will be generous. And I'm working and chipping away at your character. And the ancients called that sanctification. And it's a lifelong process. If you're like, what am I going to be doing at the age of 80? The answer is that. I'm going to be doing that at the age of 80. You're going to be doing that at the age of 80. I, I, I need the Holy Spirit to show up in my life. But you know what? You look at this and you're like, there's no way. Like, this is impossible. If you really look at what's being said in the text, I'm doomed, you're doomed, and we paper over it. When I started as a pastor over 25 years ago, I started at some small little churches. A few of you remember those. I remember doing a funeral one day. And of course, I don't know how to do a funeral. I have no idea. I'm making this up as I go along and reading the book and trying not to make mistakes and get the names right and everything. And I didn't know this one particular person very well, but I was asked to do the funeral and I said, okay, I'll do the funeral. So the, the funeral finishes and people are coming forward and the casket is sort of behind me and I'm, I'm meeting some people after the service. And there's this wonderful guy named Walter. And Walter was part of one of the churches. And Walter always had a great word. And Walter came up to me, and he just looked at me. He's like 78 years old. I'm 30. And he's a farmer, and he just looked at me, and he says, I don't recognize the man you buried. I'm like, what do you mean? And he says, he wasn't that nice. I'm like, okay, thank you, Walter. I appreciate that. But you know what you and I do? We smooth over the differences. And at a funeral, oh, this person never said a negative word. Yes, he did. Be honest. He wasn't that nice, and I'm not that nice. And we're like, there's no way. Jesus is too radical. Jesus is too radical. What are we going to do? And just when you think there's no way, Jesus gets even more radical. So we're going to flip to another passage. This is from John 14. 
And he's instructing his disciples. So they've already heard the Sermon on the Mount, and they're like, whoa. And they're getting it wrong. They're going out trying to produce miracles, and they can't do it. And Jesus is like, well, you were supposed to pray. Well, we didn't know. Okay. All right. So the disciples are not getting it right. But Jesus believes in them. This is the good news, right? Like, this is the, the center of the gospel is Jesus is like, that's all right. I haven't given up on you. If you're here, if you're watching this, Jesus hasn't given up on you. And he says, so let me tell you where all this is going. You're going to be working on this until I get back, but I want to show you where this is going. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He's making a claim here. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? In other words, Jesus is saying, this life isn't all that there is. There is an eternity, and there is a path to God, and then he's going to tell you what's involved with that. He says, when everything is ready, and back in, you know, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't ready, and I don't think it's quite ready now. He says, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And then he says, by the way, disciples, you know the way to where I am going right? And thank goodness for Thomas, because Jesus is all floating up here with his words, and the disciples are like, what is he talking about? And Thomas says, "Uh, no, no, we don't know, Lord. You lost us. We have no clue what you're talking about, and thank goodness, because then, you know, you and I get let in on what's happening. So, no, Lord, we don't know, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Like, we're lost here. And then Jesus drops this. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So let's look at this from two angles. First of all, just when you, like me, when you really read the Sermon on the Mount, and it's so easy to glance off to it, to post it to Instagram, blessed are the poor, and, you know, turn the other cheek, and and you miss it. But when you really look at it, like we just sampled today, you and I are kind of screwed, okay? We're in big trouble here, Christians alike. Just when you think there's no way, Jesus comes and says, I am the way. I am the way. In other words, I'm going to help you with this. But there's another thing that he dropped here that's very easy to miss. Now, we speak English. If you spoke Greek and Hebrew, you would be like, oh, did he just, like, it's like, why did they kill Jesus? Because he seemed to be a decent guy. He didn't hurt anybody. They killed him because of this. Jesus is dropping the fact that he's claiming that he's God in this passage. Mark Clark is going to pick up on this next time in the series. You don't want to miss it. I'm going to glance off it. Mark's coming back next week for those of you who are like, yeah, Jesus is a good person, not sure he's God, next week. Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Now, I am there is really interesting. He makes that claim numerous times in his ministry. And I am was in the Old Testament. You know, God kind of revealed himself to people, Adam, Eve, Abraham, and then there's Moses centuries later. And Moses is kind of like, look, I'll do some stuff for you, but who are you? Like, give me your name, because if you have, those of you who have ever wrestled with an uncertain diagnosis knows how stressful that can be, right? You're like, I wish I knew what this was, and the doctors can't figure it out. And I've met with people who have been diagnosed with cancer, and they're relieved that they have cancer because now they know, okay, at least it's cancer. Here's going to be the the prognosis. This is what we're going to do to treat it. And 
Moses is like, listen, if I can get your name, like, are you the rain god? Are you the sun god? Are you the earth god? Like, just tell me, because then I can kind of control you. And, and God, Yahweh, drops this, and he says, I am who I am. And the Jews to this day will not say that name because God will not be defined. And then Jesus comes along, and here he says, I am. In other words, that's me. He is claiming to be God. Now, Mark will explain this in a lot greater detail soon, but this is huge. First of all, he's saying, okay, you can't find a way. Good news. I'm the way. Secondly, oh, also, I am God. But 50, 60 years ago, longer than that now, actually, C.S. Lewis was trying to figure this out. He was an Oxford professor. He was very academic, not a Christian, an atheist. But he hung around a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, some of you Lord of the Rings. He hung around him. He was a Christian, and he was at Oxford, and there were a number of Christians that kept having discussions with him. And he became a very reluctant convert to Christianity, and then an enthusiastic proponent of Jesus. And what he says, because he ran into this argument that Jesus isn't very radical, and he's like a lot of everyone else, and, you know, he's, he's basically just a good guy. C.S. Lewis heard that all the time, particularly in academic circles at Oxford. And I want to read you an extensive quote from Mere Christianity. What C.S. Lewis said is, you can't do that. Here's what he said. He said, I am here to prevent anyone saying that the really foolish thing people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, first of all, I don't know whether you want Jesus' moral teachings. If you look at them and we just glanced off them, they're pretty crazy. There are other easier ways to do this life than Jesus. But then he said, I'm also God. And Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Like, balanced people. If your brother-in-law said, hey guys, I got something to share with you at lunch today, I'm God. You'd be like, uh, what number do we call? <laughs> like, right? It's insane to say that, but we get anesthetized to this because we've been around this message. And Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man wasn't is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious, Lewis says, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So, great moral teacher? Yeah. Radical moral teacher. God? I hope so. I've staked my life on it, and so have many of you. And to bring this to a close today, I want to ask you this question. What do you long for? 
As radical as this is, what, cutting body parts off and you can't even say you idiot in traffic and oh my goodness, like lust and ah, uh, you know, enemies, are you kidding? Lend people money and they don't repay you and that's okay? Like that is, that's an upside down kingdom. But don't you wish that the world was a little more like that? No, Siri. Um, don't you wish, I don't know how that happened. Uh, don't you wish that the world was more like that? Don't you wish your marriage was more like that? Don't you wish your family was more like that? You're like, yeah, but I don't have the strength to do it. I get it. Neither do I. So you wish there was a way. There is. And the way is Jesus. Jesus said, yeah, I've got these impossible moral standards. By the way, he met every single one of them. Every one of them. And he says, and now I'm inviting you as my followers to do the same. If you're not a follower, I'm going to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ today. If you are a follower, he's like, don't just wait to heaven for this. The kingdom is coming, and it's coming in you. And if the church would be more like the church, people would see me more in this world. So here's, here's the challenge for this week. Choose one of the teachings of Jesus to focus on and ask the Holy Spirit to help you live it out. Maybe it's traffic. Maybe it's your porn addiction, which is going to take longer than a week. Maybe it's remembering that everybody you meet at work was made in the image of God. Maybe it's saying, I'm going to forgive the person that never paid me back. I mean, there's enough here to keep you going for a lifetime. But just choose one. If you choose six, you're going to crash and burn by Tuesday. Pick one. Pick one and then say, Holy Spirit, I don't have the strength to do this, but will you show me? Will you help me? And just when you're ready to give up, <laughs> just when you think there's no way, remember this. Jesus says, I am the way. And that is the most radical teaching of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging, challenging teaching. Your word is and it's easy to wash over it and anesthetize it or to say, well, I'm not a murderer. But we kind of all are. And I ask that you would forgive us. Lord, I want to pray for people who maybe realize that they have to get off the fence and stop calling you a great moral teacher and decide. And maybe if that's you and you, you're deciding to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior today, would you pray this in your heart along with me? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, Today, I surrender my life to you. I see how impossible it is to hold up a moral standard that I agree is a good standard, but I can't do it. And I made a mess of my life, and I ask that you would please forgive me. And today, I trust you as the way, the truth, and the life, and I align my life with yours. And Father, I just, I give my heart to you, I give my life to you, and today, I am deciding to become a Christian. Father, I thank you for those who prayed that prayer. And now, Lord, for those of us who need help to live out the kingdom, the kingdom that is coming, not just in the future life, but in this life, help us to choose one, to turn to you, Holy Spirit, and that you would give us the power to be more and more like our Heavenly Father, who is perfect. In Jesus' name, amen.